From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. Good morning. This is MJ. And this is Mark. Man, that clap was dead on. It was dead I on. It's like one hand. That's right. Hell yeah. <clears throat> one hand clapping. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, what's going on today in the tiny house world? Um, having a very good hair day. Yes, you are, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, I Let wouldn't say see. that's the tiny house world. <laughs> that's her tiny house it world. It is her tiny house world. No, in the tiny house world, we have some big events coming up. And it, there's like this massive migration to the southern half of the United States for the tiny house. That's right. Stuff going on. Three, uh, three events right in a row. Huh. So we'll did, have to talk about those later. Why not talk about them now? Did, did that guy who we interviewed, the uh, guy who lives in the super tiny house, I'm not remember, his name I think has one syllable in it. Artisan Josh? Nope, that, not that guy. The guy who was in here recently. I don't Dylan want, McGaster? No, not the famous guys. Famous. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> um, you mean the gentleman who's like driving around? Yes. The, yeah. I don't want to use the the yeah, uh, artisan stero- Josh. His name is Artisan Josh. Josh. Is that him? Oh, yes. did he make it to Texas? Not yet. Is he on his way? Did He's he raise twelve hundred miles? <laughs> did he make the money? It's a, yeah, it's a bit of a story. Yeah, oh. so he made the money. Okay, everything was Good. great. He Good. actually headed out. I don't know about five or six days ago, and then he had an <laughs> axle issue, so he broke down in Boise, Idaho. Shot a man in Reno uh, just to watch him die. Right. (laughs) Is that a song? (laughs) Johnny Cash. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's okay. Sorry, Josh. So as of of 8 o'clock last night, he texted me and said he was headed out to Texas. So I did the math because I'm a geek like that. He had 1,580 miles to go in 36 hours. Wow, that's going to be a Which is driving straight through at 45 miles an hour the whole way. I just got a text from him like, Three minutes ago, he's now leaving Evanston, Wyoming. He has 1,199 miles to go, which means he'll have to drive straight through for now at 50 miles an hour. Oh, he can slow down a little. Yeah. <laughs> What's he driving? What kind of what kind of vehicle did he say? Um, he has a he has a one ton or a half ton, um, like a Dodge Ram mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that pickup. But but um, he actually unloaded most of his really heavy power tools and stuff and. Left it behind um, in Oregon, actually, huh. to try to increase his uh, to Speed. increase his mileage. Yeah, but the the cost to replace his axle that significantly cut on his gas money. Oh boy! So I did that calculation. <laughs> I'm yeah. You'll probably run out of money for a month at a time. He'll make it. He's a resourceful mofo. Well, that's mm-hmm. the thing. He'll do it. Yeah. It's just like okay, if as long as you're getting twenty miles to the gallon, and as long as you don't pay more than three dollars and twenty five cents, you know, like. Like I am here, I am doing the math, and he's like, "Nope, I'm gonna make it. Of <laughs> I'm gonna do it." Because statistics lie. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's on his way, and he definitely has a, a story and a half to tell once he gets there. He and sure God knows how he's gonna well. get back. But like you said, I mean, that's that's the best part and the worst part of travel, regardless, you know, if you're in tiny house or otherwise. But yeah, living on the road is in, is rife with unexpected surprises but mm-hmm. i guess that's what a surprise is yeah you just plan for it yes <clears throat> yeah so i'm gonna be um headed down there as well doing some mc work down there and then gonna be visiting our friends at casita 
Oh, sorry, uh, Rick. <laughs> um, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna be staying with that um, tiny innovations. Yeah, I am uh, with no, them no, 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 not t- not tiny innovations. The other, the, I thought, was it you who <clears throat> said they're gonna go down and visit the guy who we interviewed, who uh, is really passionate about. Um, oh, Brad Kittle. Yeah. Well, we were going to. <laughs> what happened? Can we talk about that, or <laughs> yeah, sure. are you going to give me the cut yeah, signal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> so I'm traveling with Pam from Tiny Digs Hotel, mm-hmm. and she really, really wanted to go see Tiny Texas Houses, and mm. so I sent, I did the shout out to, or I, you know, sent an email to Brad Kittle, and said, "Hey, Brad, we're going to be in town. Love to swing by." That's Long, like two sentences. <laughs> it it wasn't right. much more one than that. Maybe, yeah, right. one sentence. <laughs> it wasn't more than that. Um, his response was about two and a half pages long, <laughs> which the first third of it was explaining to us how busy he was and how he's got all this stuff going on. And he wasn't quite sure that there were any rentals available and da da da. da. And then he kind of went off onto one of his famous <clears throat> environmentally responsible rants. Famous, huh? Yeah. <laughs> now, it, it, now, our listeners, I'm pretty sure, pretty much everyone knows Brad Kittle. Well, maybe not. Well, maybe they, not. All they have to do is just Google our show with yeah, him. Yeah. And then and they'll kind of get the gist. Really good flavor. Yeah. At least he's consistent. Yeah. So we were going to go over there, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think I'm going to. And then also Pam, again, my friend is traveling with me. She decided she's not staying the full time. So she's just going down Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. She's leaving Sunday. Okay. So I'm actually um, headed to, after the event, after the event itself i'm actually headed to austin i'm going to go hang out with the the guys at casita um i'm very excited about. i'm that. excited about that too it'd be interesting to hear what you bring back and maybe we should do an update of casita that'd be a good idea would be a yeah good, i'm yeah. hoping they've, they they've got a, a lot of more focus on we talked to dwellers dwellers or dwellings dwellers Dwell- dweller. dwellers dweller yeah dweller, dweller. last show yeah um casita looks like their business model again yeah. from the 20,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. Looks like their business model has changed a little bit. Um, they're now offering kind of the ADU drop in your backyard option as well. I wonder if uh, nice. Professor Dumpster thought about maybe that as an option. We'll put a dumpster in your backyard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 20 bucks a night. We can put 10 of them things That's in your right. backyard. <laughs> right. No you, smell at all. You, better, you might want to see a picture of what you're staying in before you go there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> I'm sure but what Casita's developed works of art these days. Their little projects are really cool. And speaking mm-hmm. of art, we have a fantastic guest today. Uh, <laughs> a marvelous artist, I have to say, uh, who is also... Um, Actually, I'm not going to describe her as that. I'm going to skip that part. I'm just going to say she's a fabulous artist living in her self-built tiny house called The Nomad. If, uh, hearing that word, I'm sure our listeners know exactly who I'm talking about. We're talking about Dominique Moody, who is uh, with us today. Welcome to the show, Dominique. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me on your show. Not only are you a special guest, but you sound better than any of our guests <laughs> ever have. I don't know what's going on, but our sound quality from you is excellent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told I had a good radio voice. You, you do. do. Very good. Very good. Very good. So, um, <clears throat> Dominique, uh, how's it going? Things are going well. Things are going really good at the moment because some things are falling in place and coming together. Um, you know, oftentimes, both as an artist, when you're doing a work in process, you can't always fully determine the path of that process. You have a vision, but the path takes its own route. And so when you're in the midst of it, 
you can't always determine where it's going to go and turn. But you have the drive enough to um, want to see it through and to see it in its end. And I think I'm at the, some of those stages right now. Uh, it's been a long journey, though. You just described life in general. Mm. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I think, yes, it can certainly be uh, life in general. But I think um, as a creative person, you see it unfold in a very visual, visceral way. Mm. I, I think sometimes we can lose sight of it when it's just a part of our everyday lives. I think the role of um, especially visual artists is to capture those moments and, and actually enhance them so that we see them. And that is not something that we always get a chance to do in day to day. Um, by, for me, building the Nomad was to, to completely uh, enmesh both of those worlds. We often think of, you know, your, your art is something you do, you know, when you have time. Um, for me, it's, it's what I eat, breathe, sleep, live and, and live. Yeah. You're, you're, so, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I, so and, I, knew, I knew this was going to be a little difficult for me because you, you, the way you're so, um, every word that you say has meaning and impact and the way that you speak is so deliberate and measured. It's hard to decide. It's hard to know when you're actually done talking so I can ask the next question. Right. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to say, well, this is also why, this is why I love talking to artists yeah. because they, they have this eloquence about yeah. the way they use language and they just kind of pull you into the, the story of it mm -hmm. and, and your mind's I mean, lost in their words really. <laughs> exactly. And all of a sudden it's like either, Oh, they just stopped. Yeah, exactly. Or, right. Anyway, no, that's right. Or it's oh, did they? Oh, yeah. So I gotta <laughs> right. reengage my right, my right, right. Yeah. eloquence. That was a great word, though. Yeah, I almost said that. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> so there, there we, we go. go. That's, that's what we're talking sweet. about. So. It was the one question podcast. <laughs> Thank you, so. listeners. Thank you, Rick. So, so Dominique, <laughs> it's interesting because you're. So your life has been a culmination of exactly what you're talking about, these twists and turns and, and um, confronting these really interesting experiences that you've kind of, it seems like you've embodied in your art and that has informed the, the design of the tiny house that you live in. I'm looking at a picture of it now with its seemingly oogle eyes looking out at me from the picture, <laughs> those port light um, windows that you have. Talk a little bit about your tiny house and how it came together. And then maybe after that, we'll talk a little bit about where you come from, because it's a really great story. Yes. Well, it, you know, it definitely was a process. And I've always wanted to have some kind of mobile dwelling from the 1980s. And I, I was learning how to build small uh, houses back then uh, with a group of other women carpenters which was wonderful, um, and I was in the Bay Area. But a shift in eyesight, literally my eyesight changing, I had to shelve the idea temporarily um, so that I could move through addressing how I was 
seen at that point. And then fast forward, looking at a book of Natural Home uh, magazine and seeing on its back page a photograph of Jay Schaefer standing in front of Tumbleweed. And I, my first envision was that of a, um, a house truck. And that was because I had moved so many times in my life, even before 1980, that the idea of just deciding to live in a moving van made sense. It didn't make sense to anybody else. <laughs> they thought it was the craziest thing they had ever heard in their life. But that was the idea. And so when I saw Jay Schaefer's tumbleweed on a flatbed, truck, it, it opened up a, a different kind of possibility where, number one, people would recognize my home as a home, that when it was detached from the vehicle, and also in the last, um, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, we have recognized that, you know, that the, that the, the downsides of our of our mobile systems, especially the use of fossil fuel. And so I did not want to live inside a container that had fossil fuels sitting in it. And so the trailer became a new option. So it never left my mind that I would at some point, even without being a driver, that I would live mobily. It was a part of my DNA and I needed to follow it. And so in 1996, I started um, uh, with my sketches and drawings, and it ultimately became sculpture pieces in miniature. And those miniaturized houses that were mobile grew into larger installations. And those larger installations, even though they were just partial in museums and settings that were public, so that people could see the idea and then support me in it. And finally, it took four years of design and preparation and building of a network and, um, and support, and then three years of actual building and constructing the Nomad. And although yeah. it is self-built in the fact that it is a hand-designed, um, uh, it was... It was, there's no plan on it because no one could keep up with the finding of my material. Mm -hmm. And so the raw structure is planned. So it was built well and built to this, the specs of being on the road. But the aesthetics were, were fluid mm. and, and, and happenstance. But it took many, many hands working with me to make it happen. There are um, so many ways we can go with everything that you've just said, but I, the direction I want to go is with regard to the things that you found, which went into the tiny house and the um, history of your ability to find these things. I understand you were born in Germany um, and, and your father had, um, when he came back to the United States with you, with you, with his family, you guys, basically 
I want to say cobble together houses to live in that you expected to um, one day own, but nev- that never actually happened. Can you talk? I'm, I'm just reading from a, a story yes. about it. Can you yes, talk about that, that part that of your was life? was a, a really important stage because it seeded something mm-hmm. in, in me. Mm-hmm. Now, as a little bit of a step back in that before we went to Germany and before I was born, my family lived from 1948 until 1955 in trailers mm. um, because he was in the military, but also he was an officer. And he had uh, recruitment duties. And those duties took him in to travel throughout the south and southern portions of the U.S. And that is in, you know, a very important time because it was incredibly dangerous and challenging uh, to travel through uh, the most uh, express form of Jim Crow and to protect his family and to tra- have the family travel with him. Dominique, I want to I want to jump in back and forth here because there's there's a lot of this section of your life that I want to clarify or, or draw out of you. So that your father when in your family when you traveled in these trailers and he was an officer which is remarkable for that time of year in my opinion or that time of the United States, was he traveling in uniform and was he recruiting African Americans or all kinds of people? He was recruiting all kinds of people and he did have to wear the uniform because it was part of the way he had to protect himself. Right. So and, how- but we also, by living in a trailer, could be self-sufficient hmm. so that the issues of Jim Crow not being able to go into restaurants wow. or bathrooms or, or drinking from fountains could be mitigated on a certain level. Um, but it it's, I am amazed, even though my parents, my mother, who is still alive today, um, they didn't see it as a tool or tactic. It was just the way they had to live life. Mm. And they were in their early 20s. And so the first trailer was only 15 feet long. It was similar to what are typically the Shasta style, very small trailers. And they had three children and they customized the interior to meet the needs of three babies under the age of four. Um, The next one was a new moon trailer, which was 45 feet long and considered to them the house of their dream. Mm. Palatial. Yeah. (laughs) Palatial. And it was brand new and it was red and silver. Mm. And to go through the South, as a black family in this brand new trailer in a, and living in it as a home was something unheard of mm-hmm. by most people and was a spectacle. And so even though I wasn't born in that, I didn't experience it. And the first five of their children were, were in this mobile experience. I got seated with it. Mm. So by the time they went to Germany and then returned uh, in 1960, hoping that things were better and hoping that the various civil rights movements and acts would make things better, that we then tried to go into buying homes throughout the Philadelphia area and, um, and, and trying to make a home base. 
we had no intention to really want to continue uh, moving at that time. We wanted a place that was a forever home, as we sometimes spoke about. Mm. But the only homes that were available and accessible, and this is a gray area where I don't know what happened for our father with the GI Bill. Um, but evidently, it did not assist us in this area. And um, and so we got the sweat equity uh, agreement. And that is that you go into an abandoned house that could have been sitting idle for as much as 10 years because these could not be sold by the bank. They were unsellable. And you would go in for 12 to 18 months. They gave you no money at all. Mm. There was no um, loan. And you had to use your sweat equity to make that house livable. And you had to live in it while doing so. And so children anywhere between the ages of 5 to 17 worked on these houses with our father as a crew. There were nine of us. And he <laughs> figured we would be the crew. And I learned my, the first use of my uh, basic tools because we didn't have anything fancy. And so we refinished hardwood floors by hand with steel wool. Oh, my gosh. On, in a house that was a 10-bedroom house that was uh, three stories with a basement. Oh, my God. On one hand, it's so strikingly different from <laughs> the economics you think? I know I'm overstating. <laughs> I know, I know. I know I'm overstating the yeah. obvious, yeah. but I'm going to circle back to that. Yeah. So on one hand, it is so strikingly different. And on some levels, very, very sad that you would have this huge family living in a house that is, that is, unlivable. you know, unlivable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the other, on the other hand though, and here's my point for yeah, you, yeah. I promise. Okay. No, it's okay. On the other yeah. hand, um, imagine how empowering that was. Imagine today, for instance, if the government or the banks were to suddenly say that you could do this, first of all, the flippers would go out of business, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, that's but true. Except, but except, on the other hand, imagine how empowering um, that is at the same time, yeah, right? It, yeah. it, could, it could have been incredibly empowering if we were allowed to keep the house. Well, that's what I was going to, yeah. So, 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 so yeah. I, can, let me, let me just, just check in with you, Dominique. So, I can see Michelle's point of view, but when you were a kid scrubbing that floor with a steel wool, you weren't just scrubbing it, you were stripping the floor right. <laughs> with steel wool. And I presume the, the materials you're using were not EPA standard <laughs> material. So <laughs> noxious fumes even. Was, did you feel like, oh, this is going to be something that's going to benefit me in the future when I'm 50 years old and being an artist? Or did you, were you like, F this S? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't well, mean to downplay the experience at all. I think part of it is the way in which we functioned as a family, especially having lived abroad, especially having to oftentimes be, you know, the the only black family in a place, mm. or this um, family living, uh, you know, separately sometimes from a community. Uh, when when we were moving about, and so it it instills in you a kind of resiliency of working together. Mm. Um, my father had this you know way of um, 
even his children were in a sense like his charges in the military and <laughs> i i have a lot of conflicting feelings about the military but he he would say you know do a job big or small do it well or not at all oh. and it instilled in us in a very creative family uh where out of the nine at least five have expressed you know highly expressed forms of creativity, everything, writing, dancing, um, uh, music, mm -hmm. but even, you know, mechanics, all of those kinds of things. To take those ideas and those, those tools and to, to put it into a process where even though it's the most mundane thing you can think of, that you, you love that process at the moment that you're doing it because you are uh, you are working it at its highest degree. Well, that's what Michelle was, I think, getting Without to. Without compensation right. at times to do it for the, the fact that you are doing it for yourself and your family first. Yeah. And then you are doing it to express to others that it's possible. Wow. So do you think you've circled back emotionally and definitely when you were building the tiny house have you circled back and said if i can do that i can do anything well hang on a second let's not leave this era because this no, no, is no. this is a really yeah. powerful place that 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 uh, dominique is getting to well this last the yeah. last um project and we went through three of these and each time yeah. we were denied keeping the house but the last one was just after the assassination of martin luther king immediately after uh, we moved on the 4th of July around the corner to another house in Philadelphia. And it was the largest of the houses. And that's where we did all this work mm. for a year. I was 11 years old. And when we didn't get the house and, and an eviction notice was plastered because the only one thing we couldn't do in the house was replace a boiler. These are 200-year-old houses. And replacing a, a boiler or the furnace is the equivalent of the cost of the house. Mm. But everything else was, was basically done, except that our kitchen was also the hardest part to do because it required the buying of appliances. Mm -hmm. So, the, so, so we, we made it work, but lost the house, mm. were evicted from it. But I, as an 11-year-old, was determined, and I went back to the house, and I figured out ways to get back into the yard because I knew the house. And I looked into it, and a new family had bought the house, and within months took it to a level that we could never even perceive. And it was a family of a couple and a single child under the age of five. And it said to me a number of different things. Number one, this family would never have looked at that house at all mm. if we had not done the work. Mm. The bank could never have sold it to them if we had not done the work. And although I was incredibly angry, and this is an era, you're talking about 1969, mm -hmm. and the anger 
and the resentments of the time of the inequity. And I was 11 year old and that was striking me in the face, full black. And I said to myself then, because unfortunately what left with our house was our father. He could not figure out anymore how he could house this family. So he left. Mm. But it, it seated in me that I would use the tools that I learned from crafting this house that was not seen of value at all. And that one day I would build my own. Mm. That I would never allow anyone to take it. Mm. So, Dominique, And that's where the tiny house and the nomad got seated. Got it. So I just want to go back and cover a couple things that you said. So these Sueca equity agreements, they were official contracts, right? I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know the details of how, um, you know, they were formed or okay. what my parents uh, did in, in terms of that. But this it may not even have been uh, the, uh, something formal, but you're talking about red line. Right. Redlining that went really deep. And these are northern cities. These mm -hmm. are not southern cities. Mm -hmm. um, and the redlining made it really difficult for um, black families and families of color to go into certain neighborhoods and to go and not receive a loan at all. So this is what the banks were offering. So in in 2008, when I did my first large installation of, um, of the precursor to the Nomad, I was, was showing it to people who came up to me and they could not believe that the thing that was happening in 2008 actually was a, had a precursor mm -hmm. in 1968. And they were stunned by the similarity. And all of a sudden, my story was their story. And their story was my story. And it was something that had been a continuation and not something new. Mm -hmm. So this, is, this has encouraged you to... Um, you want to you cover that? I'm just talking to Michelle here for a second. No, well, um, you had asked the question about whether or not sweat equity was actually a contract. A thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or whether or not it was sort of, to what extent it was a sort of formal contract or agreement. And so I was just doing a little bit of, um, I was just doing a little bit of Googling. Um, and uh, it, it looks like it was um, very, very common and very contractual. Hmm. And so I guess my point was in asking that question was that it seemed like the banks probably knew ahead of time, I'm speculating, yeah. that, that you would not be able to fix the boiler and you would not be able to get the appliances because you had no job. Right. And so you well, were basically free labor. It was free rent to a period of time, time to get out because we can sell it now. Yeah, exactly. Felt like, felt like. Sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. But the, the um, what, what it did not offer at all is any kind of equity. Correct. There was a lot of sweat there. There was mm -hmm. very little equity. Mm -hmm. And and that still happens to to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and that that unevenness of equity, we basically were giving someone else our 
equity mm -hmm. in that process. Mm -hmm. Someone else was able to uh, accept that home and make it into a home and then um, uh, in, have that investment provide them a lifelong equity. Yeah. And so that, you know, but in the, for, for, for me, what I had to do is figure out what I could take from it. And what I took from it was that the common tools of the hammer, the screwdriver, the nail, the way in which you look at houses, what you learn from a house, how you can read its story by working on it. Mm. That's what I took away. I got to know houses and I fell in love with architecture. But I realized that that architecture wasn't necessarily always suited to me. Um, I would often choose the smallest room in the house. Mm. And there was a sense of, of comfort in that small room. Some of those small rooms were actually walk-in closets. And back in the day, a walk-in closet would have a window. Really? And, and so, it, to me, it suited me, these, small, these smaller spaces, even when we're talking about 10 and 12 bedroom houses. And each of us, in order to get our own room, we had to do the room from floor to ceiling ourselves, mm. including finding furniture. We would go out on the street and find... Um, old bed stands and, and uh, chairs that might have had one leg that was wobbly or broken and we would bring it home and we would fix it up. So that kind of stuff or, would just sit, be sitting out on the road somewhere? Sitting out for the trash. Oh. Wow. I was fascinated with the, with the uh, trash collectors and at the time um, especially in the northern cities, those jobs were often uh, uh, done by black men. And there was something amazing about uh, the big trucks. You could definitely hear them when they would rumble through um, the, the alleyways. And they would adorn those big trucks with some of the most interesting things that they found in the trash. Oh. And these big Mack trucks were would compete with the ornamentation <laughs> from the trash on the front. And that fascinated me. Uh -huh. And, you know, I was always artistic. I was always drawing. I was always looking at things. I didn't know what to do with this idea, though, of taking trash and, and, and moving that trash into something that was considered an aesthetic Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know how to frame that, uh, but it was there. And, and in our household, the eclecticness, uh, the appreciation of something found, the fact that we knew and could recognize quality were all things that I, I feel helped set the tone of my work. Mm -hmm. And, and to, Besides the paintbrush and the pencil and the um, the the acrylics or the 
the oils, that to me was also uh, a form of art material. Today, you um, obviously you live in your nomad. You do live in your nomad, right? I shouldn't say yes. obviously. Okay. I live full time in the nomad. I consider it living inside of my art. Mm -hmm. That's what I was for saying. almost um, thirty-five or more years, forty years. I um, I created my art in whatever space I was living in. And if that was my studio, and oftentimes, uh, due to the economics of it, my my workspace, my studio space, um, took the the most priority of my space. So eighty percent of whatever space I had was dedicated to the creation of work, and I would carve out a little corner where I could sleep and and eat. Um, but now it's flipped because this house is a portrait of my whole life of all of those things that I just described uh, to you of my experience of my family's experience and in the process of building the nomad and bringing in all of these eclectic richnesses, <coughs> richnesses of the things that oftentimes are thrown away. I also found the story of my own history. These stories I'm retelling to you were shared to me by my mom. She lives three, she lives on the other coast, 3,000 miles away. And she was always concerned about how I was doing this bill because she knew the kind of sweat equity I was putting in. Mm -hmm. And she was both fearful of it, but excited about it, about the notion that this is what I'm doing. By the way, today, nine of, eight of my siblings and my family, none of us own a home. We all rent. And so this was a significant, and we're all over the age of 50. Hmm. And so this is an, an, an amazing endeavor um, that the entire family, so I would speak to her on a weekly basis and try not to have her um, fearful about the, the struggle. Uh, and she would tell me these stories because I would ask her, well, what did you do? You lived in a trail. How did you do that? How did you take care of your needs? Um, and they unfolded. Midway through, after the passing of my father in the second year of my third year bill, uh, he died and I found where he was in Mesa, Arizona, living the last 15 years of his life in a motorhome. Mm -hmm. and, and being able to inherit the few possessions he had I decided I cannot accept these objects. I was in that process of editing down unless those objects became integral parts of my home to give honor both to him and his life, but also to become functional elements and not just things that gather dust on a shelf. Mm. 
because I have very few shelves <laughs> and no closet. <laughs> and so I wanted to take the basin, um, which he had in his motor home, um, the crate that he stored his books and his CDs in, and the globe that was um, always evident in every place uh, I had ever seen him live in, including our own home, the globe, because the world was an important place for him. In the military, he traveled the world, and he was always trying to seek out where is the place that he could be at home. Mm -hmm. And he would teach us to feel that we have the right. That's why he traveled with his family. And he said, you have to know that you can be at home in this world in a way that he felt as a black man in America, he could not. Mm. And so having the globe became a metaphor and having these items in here became part of my story. And therefore the house is my portrait. But in the in the tail end of the second year, on my mother's, I think, 80th birthday, my sister did the matrilinear DNA. Because although we had uh, tried to trace many of our family lines, um, of course, like most African-American families, that root, our African root, was something that we were not able to seek connection to mm. and so we did the matrilinear dna we did a um, a phone conference call because we are all scattered across the country in at least seven different cities and five different states and she tore open the envelope and read it and it said that we were the descendants of one of the largest still nomadic tribe in Africa. How? The no, Fulani and the House. What are the names again? Fulani, hmm. F-U-L-A-N-I, hmm. and the Hausa, H-A-U-S-A. And what's unique is that they're actually um, several names for them. Those are the largest groups, but they're actually related. And they span something like six countries. Wow. Now, these are colonialized countries with artificial borders. Um, and therefore, these groups used to span the territory, the area, um, and they were, would travel fluidly. And now that is much more difficult because these are now borderlined. Uh, country. It's not surprising but, to me, Dominique, that your family has lineage back to them, back to those. Um, right. Considering where you, what, the current state of your family. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so by the time I was building the Nomad, I had moved 46 times in my, uh, when I started building, uh, I, I was about 57. And so I'm now 60. And the reason why Nomad 46 is on my license plate, on my tiny house, 
is to name that. But nomad was a term we had used when people would ask us, why do you move all the time? And we were kids. Mm. But the only term we knew that was a positive one and one that we felt connected to was that we got National Geographic in the mail and it often had stories about nomadic people throughout the world. And we felt that the term was defining a way of life. We couldn't pinpoint a tribe that we were from, mm. but we certainly could pinpoint a way of life. And we felt we fit that way of life. And so I'm in grade school. Um, when the question was asked for me, I said, we're nomadic. Yeah. And so nomad was something I took on as an absolute right to describe my way of life. Mm -hmm. And that if you are in your home, your home should be the best refuge, the place that heals you, yeah. the place where you feel the safest mm -hmm. should be in your home. And that's what I built. Dominique, let me, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. And we're definitely going to want to have you back because your life, we, we've covered such a small part of who you are and what you do. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, you're, you're going on a, a just real quickly, because we're almost out of time. I, I just want to know what your logistics are. You're going on, on, on an art, artistic engagement. Is that correct? What's going on with you? Yes. I'm, I'm going to be embarking on November 1st on my first major cross country, uh, uh, journey with the nomad. And we're, we're, I'm being invited to, um, an artist in residency at Xavier university in New Orleans. Hmm. And it is an exciting opportunity and, and, opens up all kinds of possibilities but right before that this thursday i'm heading to dc um for the mid-atlantic tiny house expo and the first as far as i know of a talk titled art creativity and culture huh. and it's with um uh jewel <clears throat> excuse me jewel pearson uh lee para and Holly Bath, hmm. another artist, what we all have in common are the ways in which we creatively approach our tiny house um, as a form of expression and not just as a shelter. Hmm. And that we are going to talk and discuss how all of these things interplay into um, a much more diverse and 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 cultured and and rich life that tiny house experience offers that just sounds like a wonderful addition to the whole movement and i hope to hear more about that in the future dominique thank you so much for being on the show um tiny house listeners this was kind of an atypical show mm -hmm. it was very very measured and deep uh, and i attribute that to dominique um, but if you check out next week's show, it's going to be back to our normal irreverence. Um, a lot more of Michelle in it. Sorry, Michelle, for cutting you off earlier. No, no, no. I was trying to. Uh, yeah, it's it's a tough balance. It to is a tough balance. Story yeah. and 
um, as you know, norm- normally our shows have, you know, we have discourse and we have back mm-hmm. and forth. So I just wasn't prepared for the, shall we say, reverent nature of the show. <laughs> Thank Not you. enough yeah. profanity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, again, I didn't mean to. Uh, no, it's good. I didn't mean to downplay the experience at all. I was just on a different, no on a different yeah, plane. No worries at all. Uh, and so listeners, check us out next week. We'll have another great show. And uh, Rick McNerney, thank you so much for making us sound as good as we sound. And we had, we have two reviews. We have, well, we'll just read one. Read we don't want to okay. waste it. But, um, and if you have a review, leave it. We just might read it. Never know. It's a five-star review. Bring on the tiny from P-P-A-A-X-X. That's me. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> they make fun of you. No, they don't oh, do yeah. that. I always learn something, a new acronym, a new website to check out, a new word. Neener Deener. And I really appreciate <laughs> and I really appreciate the new sound. Kudos to Rick. Oh that's awesome. And then and then it ends with hmm. <laughs> and how do you all clap at the same time? No, it does not. Awesome. It does. Does it really? A lot of practice. The answer to that it is, is it is really hard. And when we're off, the whole show's <laughs> off. <laughs> that's thanks, hilarious. Pax. Thanks, Pax. Uh, thanks, Pax. All right. Have a great day, everybody. See you next week. Namaste. See you. See ya. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>